Well, what a year it has been. We have made it to the last Sunday of 2020. Um, Some of you optimistic types um, believe that in 2021, we're going to get to normal pretty soon. And uh, others of you who are not so optimistic types, my kind of people, believe we have a long, long road ahead of us. So let's not maybe get too happy too quickly. I'm sure that I was not alone, excuse me, in thinking that by the end of December 2020, just maybe there might be some normalcy, at least some recognizable normalcy. But here I am, and there you are at home. It's Christmastide 2020, Christmastide 2020, and we're all just in waiting. What's at the top of your wait list? For our schools to be in person again? For people to be called back to the office? For the vaccinations to be spread out quickly? for quarantine periods to end, for job markets to turn around, the ability to see friends and family once again. What important life events have you had to put on hold in 2020? Maybe a significant birthday celebration or anniversary travel plans, or how about starting college campus, uh, starting college classes on campus? Maybe finally landing a new job. What has 2020 left you waiting for? And how should we, the people of God, respond? Our passage today is for those who are living in wait. It may seem that what Titus and the church in Crete were waiting for is quite different than what we're waiting for in the year 2020. But as we look closer, we're going to see that we're very much waiting for the same thing, ultimately. So let's jump right in. We're looking at a set of verses from Paul's letter to Titus. Titus, along with 1st and 2nd Timothy, are pastoral letters. They're three letters that discuss critical subjects that Pastor Paul wants to talk about with younger pastors. And Titus was responsible for nurturing a church on a tiny, small Greek island named Crete. Up until this point in the letter, Paul gives some basic teaching on church planting. He talks about leadership, uh, what kind of qualities should we look for in church leaders. He discusses discusses how to go about discipleship. Older church members should mentor younger ones. And in our verses today, he talks about how to live as disciples who are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Titus and the believers in Crete had the challenge of living in between the times. You say they believed the gospel of Jesus. They were living as disciples. But they needed guidance on how to live until Jesus returns. It's easy to fritter away, to fritter away time between appointments, isn't it? Our text shows us how to live. Not just how to live until we return to normalcy after a pandemic, but how to live in between the two most important events of all time. Look at how our passage is laid out. Lays out two major markers of history, Christ's first appearance in verse 11 and his second appearance in verses 13 and 14. And Paul teaches us how to live in between those two advents of Christ in verse 12. Notice that this verse falls right in between the first and second coming of Christ. 
And just like Titus and the believers in Crete, we're living in verse 12 with them. So first we will see the king's arrival, then we'll talk about the king's reign, and then we will see the king's return. So Christmas is the feast of the church that celebrates the first advent, the arrival of the king. The grace of God has appeared. That brief statement is a tweet-sized summary of Jesus' entire ministry. King Jesus' arrival shows us that God's love for the world is unearned. When powerful figures arrive on the scene, that, that always changes the course of events, doesn't it? For better or for worse. A few years back, while I was working with a client in my office, it was late in the afternoon, and he kept on looking up at the clock. And he said to me, when I was a child, whenever it got close to 5 p.m., I started to get really nervous and anxious. I started to pace. It was the time that his parents returned home from work. Around 5 p.m., he would be playing up in his room, and he would hear the key start to wrestle the door open. And if it was the sound of high heels hitting the floor, he breathed a big sigh of relief. His mother would run upstairs and embrace him. He was starved for a parental affection that he didn't have throughout the day. But if instead of high heels hitting the floor, he heard the crash of boots, dread set in for him. My father always wore thick belt buckles, he said to me. When a Roman emperor conquered an opposing city-state, a triumphant parade was shown that this was indeed the true ruler, that the emperor was the true victor, and that he was to be feared by all. And to drive home the point, the victims that he conquered were completely disgraced. They were dragged behind him on his chariot. Many people have the same images of God. He's an abusive father. He's a merciless tyrant. But this season reminds us that God does not hold up a clenched fist, but an opened arm embrace of our world. Because in the actual personhood of Jesus, God embraces humanity. He brings us into his very being. In Jesus, the bond between God and us is closer than the bond between a pregnant woman and her child. The king of creation wants us to be united to him forever. For the rest of God's unending life, his ID card has the human face of Jesus Christ on it. That's how he wants to be known to the world. God in the face of a human. The grace of God has appeared. Not just in Jesus' person or and his identity, but God shows us his grace in how Jesus arrives. He is the creator of the universe, and yet he is born in a manger, and his palace is a cattle stall. Jesus, as God, commands where every lightning bolt should go across the sky, yet he does not want us to come to him out of fear. He summons us to himself. God summons us to himself through the cries of a newborn baby. He would rather we delight in him than we should fear him. And look at what this king does when he arrives. He brings salvation to all people. When the Queen of Sheba visited the newly coronated King Solomon, 
the Bible catalogs a long list of gifts she gave to him. Four and a half tons of gold, large quantities of precious stones and spices. And the writer of Kings says this, Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Well, if those gifts were given to King Solomon, then how much more should be given to Jesus, who is greater than Solomon? But that is not the New Testament's focus. Paul's focus is not on what gifts this king receives, but on what gifts this king gives. He brings salvation to all people. He brings about total transformation that restores broken relationships with God, with ourselves, and with one another. I imagine that when Titus shared this letter with other leaders from Crete, this statement would have made them shake their heads in disbelief. Because you see, the Cretans were not exactly the most esteemed people in the Roman Empire. They were pegged as lazy loafers who massaged the truth to make a dishonest buck. So the idea that the creator of the universe and the judge of all the world wanted to claim them as his people must have been jaw-dropping. He wants us? That was only part of the good news. The reality is that God didn't just want them. He wanted them from all eternity. In the passage, in the Old Testament passage that Mary read this morning, uh, we're reminded that even God's people in the Old Testament weren't chosen for their merit, but simply because God had set his eye on them and made them his people. That was true for Israel. It was true for Titus and those believers on the tiny island of Crete. And it's true for us today. God wants us because he wants us. He embraces us. His embrace of us, excuse me, is wider than our grasp of him. The theme that God brings salvation to all people is appropriate for the Christmas season. Last week on the Zoom prayer call, uh, Pastor Tracy had the group reflect on the epiphany of the star to the wise men. That word epiphany is translated in our passage today as appearance in verse 11 and 13. Epiphany means manifestation, especially of something that was not previously understood. It's the moment you find your keys after scrambling all morning to find them. It's the time you're sitting in math class and the solution becomes very clear. It's the aha experience. And at the first advent or first appearance of Christ, the star appeared to the Magi in the east and they followed it to Bethlehem. And through the city, it led them to the home of Mary and Joseph to the foot of Jesus's cradle. And they bowed down and worshiped Jesus. This was the first instance Gentiles paid homage to the Jewish Messiah. And in that modest setting, you have Jews and Gentiles on their knees, worshiping King Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, two groups that cover all people across the earth, are brought together by King Jesus. Two groups that were at odds culturally, religiously, politically, now worship the same Lord. He brings salvation to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. 
already at the foot of his cradle, Jesus Christ is reconciling the world to himself. But we have a hard time embracing this message. When the Renaissance artist Veronis was asked to paint the Last Supper, he drew Jesus with his disciples around the table, as you might expect. But then he also painted drunk people, a court gesture, and other less noble characters. His patrons were furious and demanded that he change the painting. How could you paint people like this around Jesus? Well, Veronis refused to change the painting. If that painting were commissioned today, who would we see around Jesus? Maybe someone like Jared Lida, who was a lucrative drug dealer before King Jesus delivered him from his life on the streets. And he's now a church planner in the Northwest. Maybe someone like Brittany de la Mora, who was an adult film star, who attempted to take her life in despair. And then God grabbed a hold of her and put her life on a different course. And she now shares the testimony of God's grace to her across the country. Or maybe someone like Mahsan Hassan Yusuf, a former member of Hamas that God rescued and has used to prevent the deaths of innocent people throughout the Middle East. Listen to how Thomas Onan, a theologian, puts it. God's mercy has appeared for the salvation of all, bringing deliverance to all classes of humanity and all times and all places to all sorts of conditions that men and women find themselves in. And that includes the condition you find yourself in today. Maybe 2020 was your worst year, or maybe 2020 was your best year. But you, gotta, you have to know this, that your best can't beat the deliverance that Jesus Christ brings to you, and your worst can't undo his deliverance either. You see, because Jesus is God, he alone is the one who can give you the deliverance that you need. And because he is human, there is no question that you, his fellow human being, are meant to be a recipient of his grace. Your best didn't motivate him to come down, and your worst sins, even your sin of unbelief, didn't prevent him from being a savior to you and a lowly one at that. So we've seen that the king has arrived. Let's now look at his present reign. In verse 12 there, it says that the king, uh, excuse me, the grace of God appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice the nature of, king, of the king's reign. It's godly living. It's spiritual. When Jesus into, ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit to unite us to himself so that we would believe in his name. And unlike any other king that has ever lived, Christ's reign encompasses every region in this world, wherever his people are. And his throne is on the hearts of all those who embrace him. Jesus demonstrates his powerful rule now in the lives of his followers. Notice, there are two sides to how we are to live. First, Paul identifies what we're learning to give up. We're renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. 
And then second, he says, what we are to take up. We're to take up upright, godly lives. To renounce ungodliness means that we avoid at all costs all those things that dishonor Jesus. It means that when there's an opportunity to take a shortcut at work, the boss isn't watching, we still do the right thing. When there's gossip in the office, you hold your tongue and head off in the other direction. It's difficult to do, but if you're sitting in a virtual class, you leave your camera on so that you can show that you're being attentive to your teacher. At home, it means that if your spouse or sibling needs help, you help them, you offer the help. And these are just some examples. They're really countless ones I could have given, but it's important to see what all of them have in common. They have to do with giving honor based on our calling. Whether that's at work, school, home, or church. These examples are ordinary. There is absolutely nothing heroic about them. But when our ordinary works have the fingerprints of God's grace, it has an extraordinary impact. It was ordinary bread and fish that the boy offered Jesus that Jesus used to feed the 5,000. It was ordinary mud that Jesus used to return the sight to the blind man. Ordinary acts of obedience in our spheres in life honor God and show that we value what he values as, he, as his disciples. But what makes it difficult to give to others and to God what is due? Our worldly passions. That's what Paul says in verse 12 there. They need to be trained so that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives today. This is what we are to take on instead. Just think how different society would be if we managed our impulses better. There wouldn't be DUI accidents that resulted in death. There wouldn't be sexual assault crimes. There wouldn't be domestic violence in the home, all of which, by the way, typically increases around the holiday season. We create disorder in our lives because we are unable to restrain our impulses. We gossip at work because we're not able to manage our angry feelings. We don't learn what we need to in school sometimes because we pursue daydreams. We fail to fulfill family obligations because it's just easier to let things go. God's grace in our life trains us how to live here and now, not according to our whims and impulses. God's grace gives us the ability to say no. When I was a teenager, I attended a funeral of one of our church members. His name was Johnny Adams. He died unexpectedly in his sleep in his early 60s. Johnny had an intellectual disability. For most of his life, he had to live with his mom to get help with daily uh, life activities. During the reflection time of the funeral, a gray-haired man came to the microphone and told a story from when he and Johnny were boys. One day, Johnny was waiting with other children for the school bus. This was the 1950s. So imagine a child with an intellectual disability waiting with other children for a school bus without adult supervision. Well, one of the kids went up to Johnny and punched him in the mouth 
and Johnny fell to the ground crying. The attacker began to laugh mockingly. Then one of the other boys, this man speaking at the funeral, went up to Johnny's aid and grabbed the attacker by the collar and started to form a fist. But before he struck him, Johnny cried out, Don't hit him. He's my friend. And the boy let go of the attacker, and they both ran to help Johnny up. And Johnny's face was dripping with blood, yet in that moment he united both his attacker and his defender. Do you see how Jesus continues to demonstrate his power in the lives of his people? The grace of God was on full display in Johnny's life that day. And while it may seem like a small thing to practice self-control, he shows us just how powerful of a witness that can be in this world. Fifty years later, that man never forgot Johnny's kindness. And he spoke about it at his funeral. But you know, this self-control isn't natural. That's why God's grace has to help us. It isn't always pleasant training for worthwhile things like a race or weightlifting or physical therapy, especially in the beginning process, is very painful. Well, how much more when that process is the formation of Christ into our characters? It will cost us, but it will also make an impact on those around us. So in 2021, where would you want to see God's grace re-educating your desires? Where do you want to see God's grace at work? If you don't know, the place to start is to ask those people that you love and who love you. Maybe you live with them, or maybe they're close friends. Listen to what they say without judgment. Pray for guidance and immediately start practicing the smallest change you can make. Maybe it's not bringing the phone to the dinner table. Maybe it's praying for ways that you, can, that you have contributed to unhappy relationships in your life and some changes that need to happen there. If you are a believer in Christ, no act is too small for God's grace to work with to grow love into your life. And even just asking that question, what can I do just a little differently, is a sign that you desire to grow in love. So, so far we've seen that the king has arrived, and he brings salvation. We've seen that the king reigns, he teaches us how to live. Lastly, we will look at the king's return and our great hope. Verses 13 and 14, we are preparing for the king's return, his second advent. Notice verse 11, his first advent is marked by grace. And then in verse 13, his second advent is marked by glory. Paul wants us to expand our vision to see the return of King Jesus on the horizon to increase our hope in God. We need training to do this because too often we get discouraged or we look away and we fail to look out that the hope that Jesus Christ is bringing is indeed coming soon. Gertrude Elderly was the first woman to swim across the English Channel. And in her first attempt, after eight hours of swimming, she was pulled up out of the water, never reaching shore. She couldn't see her destination in front of her. 
In the second attempt, the waves beat down on her body. The salt from the waves swelled up her tongue. And she was uh, swimming all throughout that time for 14 hours with jellyfish stinging her repeatedly. But the reason she could press on to the end and reach her mark is because she never lost sight of the horizon. So all of us must see the return of Jesus on the horizon and to continue to press on in faith. We express our desire for Christ's return every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the glorious peace of heaven cover this entire earth. And the return of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that petition. If you were to ask your friends, if you were to ask your neighbors, would you want heaven on earth? Would you want to live in a world where there were no injustices, no pandemic, where all of earth's resources were beautifully restored, where all your relationships were harmonious? Would you want that? I doubt you would find a single person who'd say, no, I wouldn't. But whether people realize it or not, what that desire is about is ultimately about the return of Jesus Christ. Because that is how all those desires are going to be fulfilled in this world. But here's the catch. Look at what Paul highlights about the return of the king. It's to reclaim his treasure possession who were made pure, who were zealous for good works. We will only want the return of Jesus Christ if we are prepared for his return. That's the only way that we will want to hear that news. There is no restoration of this world without the return of Jesus Christ. One New Testament image that talks about Christ's return is the great feast. So right now is the time to tidy up and set the table in preparation for that great feast. How do we do that? By living pure lives and doing good works. If the church is known for consumption and not sacrificial living, then the return of the king isn't going to be good news at all. If the vision that excites us has more to do with granting our own desires, then we're not even the kind of people who can enjoy the return of Jesus. In fact, we won't even be dressed for the feast. It will be enjoyed as much as a person without ears would enjoy the sounds of a beautiful concert. Or as much as a person without taste buds would enjoy a decadent dessert. The fact of the matter is the aha moment of Christ's return will be more like, oh no, not one of glory, but of dread. So we must be prepared. His people must be prepared for his return. I want to show you an example of a church that is well prepared for the return of Christ. In the 200s, a deacon from Rome named Lawrence was asked by a city official to see the wealth of the church. And by that he meant, let me see your objects that you use in worship, the candle holders, the gold offering plates, the communion chalices, and the like. And Lawrence said to the city official, okay, uh, it's true that our church is wealthy, I don't deny that. In fact, no one in the world has any, as much wealth and gold as we do. 
But Lawrence said, give me three days to prepare for what I will show you. Well, when the day came and the city official came back, Lawrence opened the door of the church, and there was a group of people lined up. One man stood with eyeless sockets. Then a crippled man stood with a broken knee. Then a man with one leg was lying on the ground. Lawrence lined up as many of the poor, sick, and ragged people of the city as he could find. The city official looked at the crowd of people and said, What is this? Lawrence said to the man, these, these are the church's most treasured possessions. There are none more valuable than these. And with that, the city official ordered the execution of Lawrence. You see, if the poor and the needy are the church's most treasured possessions, then we will prove that we are the kind of people who are ready for Christ's return. The church in Lawrence's day embodied the teaching of our text today. They believed that the king arrived to bring salvation to all people, even those that the world would disregard. They believed that, the, that King Jesus' reign taught them how to live in the here and now. They didn't chase after wealth in this life, but aimed to be rich by doing good to others. When Lawrence showed the city official the poor and the sick, He knew it would cost him his life. But he wasn't thinking about the return of the city official. His hope was set on the king's return. So how about us? How will we be living in between times? You know, we don't know what next year will bring. But we are not without guidance on how to live, even during a pandemic. A return to normal would be really nice for sure. But Christ redeems us and prepares us for something far better, far more glorious, and that's his victorious return. And may God continue to give us grace as his church to live in between advents. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. How amazing, Father, that the all-ruling judge of this universe has come down to us as a helpless baby in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you give us the grace to believe your promises so that while we live in between advents, your light and love can shine through our struggling efforts. Give each person praying or listening a greater measure of your grace in this coming year to be what you have made us to be in your Son, Jesus Christ. By your Spirit, we pray. Amen.